God is good. All the time. And he is good all the time. Sometimes you just have to wait a while to see that. But it is true. And uh, when we say those words, we, we don't say those words lightly uh, at all. And uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. And uh, I hope that what we do here today will be a glory to God and also an encouragement uh, to all who are here. There are some things that you can uh, see with your eyes and you're not quite sure how to interpret them because there's more than one interpretation of what you're looking at. I remember back, uh, this goes back maybe even, even into the Clinton years, from 15 miles up a satellite made a picture of um, a facility that was in the Sudan, I think is where it was. They thought it was a chemical uh, a chemical uh, production facility is what they thought it was. And they uh, lobbed a couple ICBM missiles onto that site and later found out that what looked like a chemical production facility was actually an aspirin factory. You know, sometimes what you're looking at, you can't, you don't necessarily get it. You don't understand. Many years ago, there was a, a trial of a fellow named Dennis Koslowski. He was the CEO of a corporation called Tyco, and he was... Uh, on trial for um, allegedly uh, defrauding his company of $600 million. You know, you'd think after a couple million, you could kind of break it off. He probably could have got by with a couple million, but no. <laughs> Dennis, he's going big, $600 million. And uh, as they come to the conclusion of that trial, and the judge had given, uh, you know, the lawyers had made their closing statements, and the judge had given his instructions to the jury, as the jury walks out, one of the jurors looks over at Dennis and goes, You okay, Sonny? Well, I guess that could be kind of an innocent sort of thing. Maybe, you know, who knows? But that uh, thing raised all of these suspicions of jury tampering when that happened. So, you know, I, who knows what, what that was about? I, I don't know if they ever figured that out entirely. But my point is there's some things that are hard to uh, understand just by looking at them. And then there are some things that you just can't miss. Some things that you're not going to misinterpret. And I think the cross of Christ is one of those things you cannot get wrong. I remember years ago, uh, as you go out, went out White Gravel Road, there's the place there where Eckhart Road and Luther Road cross over. And on a hill to the left for... Uh, uh, a few years anyway, it's not there anymore, but you would go by at night and you would see a cross up there on the hillside to the left, all lit up and everything. Uh, I don't know who owned the land, I don't know who built that cross, I don't know who put it up. But I have a pretty good idea how they feel about Jesus. We've all had the experience of riding down the interstate. And as you ride along the interstate in Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia, and in fact, in 29 different states, you will see this scene from time to time. You'll see three crosses, maybe back from the, uh, back from the interstate, two or 300 yards on a hill or in a bank or something. There's no words. There's no signs. But when we look at those three crosses, we know the meaning of those crosses. We understand what's going on. There was a millionaire from West Virginia named Coffin Daffer who spent $3 million of his own money 
and began to erect those crosses in 1984 and continued to do that until 1993. And he was responsible for setting up uh, 1,864 sets of three crosses in 29 states. And when you see those three crosses, what do we think? What do we know? We stop and think for a few moments about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The cross has become a a universal uh, symbol of God's love, of God's concern, of God's feelings about us, about Jesus' sacrifice, about forgiveness and hope and eternity and every positive thing that you can think of. When you see the cross, you go to those areas. That wasn't always true of the cross. If you go back to the time of Jesus The cross meant anything but those things. It was an instrument of torture. It was the death reserved for the most, uh, uh, for the most serious of criminals. Um, In fact, as far as the Romans were concerned, the cross was uh, the cross what it was because they wanted to refine the torture that was inflicted on a person when they were impaled. It was a refinement of impalement. Impalement was something that was practiced in the ancient Near East. The problem was, as far as the Romans were concerned, is that people died too quick. So they put a little cross piece across the top there, and that kept them alive. And there are records that show that people would live sometimes as much as two or three days on the cross and increase the suffering that was there. To make it a more horrible kind of death, a, a, a deterrent to anyone who might want to defy the power of Rome. In our own time, the cross is a much, a much more positive symbol. In fact, sometimes it's even worn as jewelry, but it was never worn as jewelry in the day of Jesus. It'd be like uh, us walking around with a little uh, little electric chair or something hanging on a pendant on the end of our necklace or little electric chairs hanging at the ends of our ears. You know, uh, that's how crazy it would be to wear a cross in the day of Jesus. But the New Testament says that the cross of Jesus meant different things to different people. I don't want to read to you the words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22 through 25. And this is where Paul says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. And it was a stumbling block because in the old law, Deuteronomy chapter 21, the last verse says that he who is hanged upon a tree is, is cursed of God. So... Jesus couldn't possibly be the Christ because he was under the curse of God. He was hung on a tree. That was a stumbling block to every Jew. But he says, says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness or folly to Gentiles. The Gentile world didn't know anything about that business in the old law, but they looked at this thing. What do you say? He's he's the king? He's the guy that's, (laughs) he's your big hope? (laughs) Sorry, you got it wrong. It was just foolishness to them. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For a few minutes, I just want us to focus on the cross. I want you to think about what it means. There's basically four things I want to tell you that I think becomes clear as you focus your eyes upon Jesus on the cross. The first one is is that there was no other way. There was no other way. 
for God to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish than what happened. There are many who say that Christ's way is a good way, but it's not the only way. You can find your, there are many say that you can find your way to God through Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or Hindu, any of the, the Hindu gods, or, you know, you can go on and on. There's all kinds of world religions that uh, we know about. And uh, like I say, there are many people who say there's more, there's no one way to God. There are many ways which lead to God. But if this is true, then what Jesus did on the cross is unnecessary. It really wasn't required in order to make a way for us to get back to God and be in fellowship with him. And if the cross is unnecessary, then Jesus died on that cross for nothing. I want you to think about the cross for a moment, about the scourging that went along with the cross, about the suffering that was, that was there. And I know uh, probably most of us here have seen The Passion, that movie at one time or another. That was pretty graphic how the suffering that was associated with the cross is, is portrayed there on the screen. And, and, and I don't know how accurate that is. I, I'm, I'm guessing it's pretty close to what it was really like. And here's my question. Do you think the Father would have put the Son through all that for nothing? Do you think the Son would have agreed to the cross if it wasn't really necessary? I don't think so. In the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. It's Matthew 26, verse 39. It says, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. He's talking about what's about to happen, uh, his crucifixion. He knows it's coming. And he said, dear father, please, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. As far as I know, this is the only time in Scripture when Jesus asked for something and God said no. And I'm just thinking, if there was another way, surely the Father and the Son would have known about it or figured it out. And if there had been another way, then surely the Father and the Son together would have taken advantage of it. They wouldn't have done that if it wasn't absolutely necessary. What was the father's reply? It's Luke 22 and verse 43. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And it's as if to say, God said to the son, there is no other way, but I will strengthen you for what you are about to experience. When we look at the cross, I think it's pretty clear there was, there was no other way. Jesus is talking to his disciples in John chapter 14, talking about the fact I'm going to leave. And he says, I'm going to prepare a, a rooms for you. Really great place. I'm making, and I'm coming back to get you. And then he says, starting about verse 3, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then he says, the way you know, where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas is listening to this, and he said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how could we possibly know the way? And Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And there's something in, in what Jesus says there. But, you know, he, he says it very plainly. He said there is no other way. No one comes to the Father but by me. But he says, you know, I am a way. I'm one of many ways. <laughs> no, he says, I'm the way. 
I'm the only way. And I'm not one of many truths. I am the truth. And I'm not one source of life that you can pick from, but I am the source of life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So when you look at the cross, what you, I, I think what you see is that it had to be necessary. It, they, there would have been another way that something else would have been done if there was any way to get out of it at all. The Father would never put the Son if it wasn't absolutely necessary. Put him on the cross. Here's a second thing that you can think about when you, when you look at Jesus on the cross. And I think it tells us that sin is a very serious matter. Take a look at the cross, and you can say to yourself, if it took the cross to pay for my sin, if that's what it took, then sin is a bigger problem than I ever imagined. I mean, I'm not able to comprehend how big of a deal it is and what a sad state of affairs, how sad it is for me. And you see, sin is not something that God could just overlook. I don't entirely understand this. But if there was a way to overlook it without the cross, I think God would have done it. But the cross tells us that sin was a big deal. Very serious. Sin was not something that God could just overlook. He had to do something about it. There was a price that had to be paid. And none of us were able to pay that price for ourselves. The Father had to pay the price for us. And what that meant was that Jesus was going to the cross. He was going to experience that. And he goes to the cross. He is punished for our sin. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is this. Is this one, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he who knew no sin was made to be sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Basically, Jesus just traded places with us. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was the righteousness of God. Before the cross, he was the righteousness of God after the cross. But on the cross, we switched places. (laughs) He became sin, and we became the righteousness of God because of what he did. When we look at the cross, we see the cost of sin. And we have to say sin is a serious matter with God, that his grace has not come cheap. And even though we sometimes uh, treat God's grace as if it were cheap, And we say and think things like, you know, well, I can always get forgiveness. I'm just going to go ahead and do that because I can always say I'm sorry and get forgiveness. That's cheapening grace. Think about what it costs God to provide the grace that we have. I think you can understand why that's not a good thing to say to God. That's not a good thing to be thinking because it makes grace cheap. The psalmist says, this is David, it's, it's Psalm chapter 19 and verse 12. I just happened to think of this as, this morning as I was thinking about this lesson. He says, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sin. You know what presumptuous sin is? Sin is, well, you know, it's not that bad. Sin, I can do this and I can always get forgiveness. Man, I just want to step back about 50 feet from a person like that because I'm waiting for the lightning bolt to come down. Grace is not cheap. And we should never treat it as cheap. At the present time, our vision is blurred and we are sometimes confused about how serious sin is. But I know that on Judgment Day, we'll get our first real glimpse of the seriousness of our sin. Because all of us, whether we are Christians or not, are going to see all of our lives in the light of God's holiness. And for the first time in our existence, we'll see just how 
really bad. It is. I guarantee you this, that no one will leave the throne of judgment. No one will go to heaven. No one will go to hell thinking that sin is no big deal. They'll know because they've been through judgment. But the cross tells us right now, if we're willing to think about it, that if that's what it took to forgive our sins, and sin is a serious matter. Here's a third thing you can think about when you see Jesus on the cross, and that is that God loves us, every one of us. And sometimes we say, I love you with words, and sometimes we say, I love you with things with things that we do by our actions and the cross is God's way of saying I love you without words to every person on the planet it's not in words but it's in the act of dying for you and for me on the cross and it's like I it's like God wrote it in the sky I love you in in giant letters across the sky I love you people with the cross God says I love you to the lost Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, Peter's talking about God's uh, forbearance, God's patience, and why God has not wound it all up and brought it back, uh, you know, done everything that he promised to do. And here we are. That's like in the first century. We've gone, we've gone another 19th century since then. But Peter says, you know, God's not slack, as some men count slackness. He's just long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants every person on the planet to be saved. The cross is God's way of saying, I love you. I'm making a way for you. And with the cross, God says, I love you to the saved, too. And it's kind of odd how uh, we think about God sometimes. We, we, you know, we, we gladly accept all of that grace when the gospel is preached. We, we confess our faith in him. We confess our sins. We're baptized, we're cleansed, we receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's, it's a great thing. And, and we just said, wow, God can forgive all of my, all my sins and make, make me okay with him. And then we start to worship a God that we imagine is trying to find a way to get rid of us. It's kind of an odd thing that we do, isn't it? Some Christians imagine that God is just waiting for them to mess up. Looking for some kind of technicality somewhere that they've just... You know, accidentally stepped over the line the wrong way. And aha, now I don't have to break. I don't have to take that person to heaven. Got rid of them. <laughs> yeah, that's not God's goal. That's not what he's about. He doesn't. The cross says God is not looking for a way to get rid of us. He's looking for a way to save us, to keep us, to bring us home to him. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. This is another one of my favorite verses. Paul says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And if you understand what Paul is saying there, uh, we, ha we have great hope. You can, re you can begin to realize how secure we are in Christ. And, I'm, and when I say this, I'm not saying that a person who's become a Christian can't mess it up that they can't break it off with God and go their own way and be lost in the end. It, that's possible. But I think it's hard. I don't think it's something that you accidentally do. And here's the verse that tells me this. For if while I was an enemy of God, God sent his son to die for me. He loved me that much that he would send his son to die on the cross for me. What makes me think, now that I've become his friend, that he's trying to find ways to get rid of me? He's trying to catch me, trip me up, uh, catch me on a technicality that what, what would really make him happy is if I messed up and then he didn't have to put up with me in eternity. 
You see, that, that's, that's the gospel backwards. That's the gospel upside down. The whole message is God wants us. He wants us to be with him. And he's got a hold. Once we become Christians, he's got a hold on us. And I'm going to tell you, we might be letting go, but he's not letting go anytime soon. He hangs on. So he's not looking for ways to get rid of us. He's looking for ways to hang on to us, to bring us home. And when we look at the cross, that's God saying without words, I love you. I want you to be saved. And I want you to stay saved. And I'm going to hang on to you. If you just let me do this, I'll take care of it. And here's the fourth thing that we can think about when we see the cross. And that is, the cross means there's healing for us. Uh, you know, we live in a broken world. Been broken since the fall back in Genesis chapter 3, however long ago that was. But, it, you know, it's because of one man's sin. All these bad things happened. Sin entered the world, and that has affected the world. It's affected us and all of our world. And, you know, you might think that Christian people are people who have it all together and that we, you know, we, we got our lives in order and all, everything's just headed in the right direction and that doesn't he look good and, and all that. <laughs> you need to think again, okay? <laughs> We're pretty miserable. We are broken people. And we live in a broken world. And all of us are that way. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. You, you are broken and there's things that need to be fixed in you. And the biggest difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is a Christian knows he's broken and he's letting God work on him. And a non-Christian doesn't know he's broken. Or maybe he knows he's broken, but he just doesn't know where to go to get fixed. So you might think Christian people are people who have it all together. And I just say you need to think again. Some of us are a half bubble off and some of us have no bubble at all. So we are living uh, broken lives. We've experienced broken relationships. We, we live in broken families. We have broken careers. Our plans, our dreams are broken. Our promises are broken. We need to be fixed. We need to be healed. And the cross is God's promise that everything is going to be fixed. That there is healing in the cross of Christ. In reference to the cross, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the cross, made this statement. This is Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5. And it's a prophetic vision of what was going to happen 700 years later in Jerusalem at Golgotha. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. There is healing. In the cross of Christ. Things get fixed. Everything that is broken is put right by what Jesus did on the cross. And Paul goes on to talk about this later in Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 21. He's describing uh, how the whole world is just waiting. Eagerly waiting. Anticipating the day when Christ comes back and does everything that the cross promises us. Paul says it like this, Romans 8, 18 through 21. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation, he's talking about the physical creation, the world that we live in, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And when does that happen? Well, that, that's the last day. That's when Jesus comes back. That's when all of the promises are kept. 
He says, uh, the anxious longing of the creation, all of the world, waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. When? Genesis chapter 3, in the fall. Even the ground is affected by what, by what Adam did. The ground is cursed. It was subjected to futility, not, because, not willingly, not because it wanted to be, but because of him who subjected it. God did that, but he did it in hope. You see those words, in hope. There's an expectation that more is coming. Something is going to be done. And there's a promise made in Genesis chapter 3 that, hey, things are going to be set right. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Our world is corrupted by the power of sin. And there's coming a time that it will all be set free from that corruption and become a part of the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so in the cross, everything gets fixed. Don't you love it when broken things finally get fixed? I remember, uh, I mean, I started trying to think of some of, the, some of the times when my stuff got broke, and it was uh, painful and bothersome. And I remember when the, the fan on my defrost went out. This is this years ago, Nashville, Tennessee. In January, my fan broke on my defrost. Now, if you've ne this never happened to you, you might not know about this. But... Uh, some morning when you get up and, and you can't get the hot air up there on your windshield and you're driving down the road in 20 degrees with your head hanging out the window with ice coming in your face, you're pretty glad when you get your defroster fan fixed, okay? You're happy about it. Don't you love it when things finally get fixed? I remember, uh, probably some of you can remember some malady, some disease, some condition, some broken thing on your body. It just hurt, 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 hurt. It was bothering you. Finally, you were able to get that fixed, taken care of. And on Thursday, you know, we're hoping that uh, little Kinsley gets that problem that she's having with her esophagus. We're hoping that that gets fixed and she can have, uh, she can have a, a more normal kind of life. And don't you love it when broken people receive their healing? There's healing from addiction in the cross. I remember being at uh, the Tulsa workshop back. This has probably been 10 years ago. And at the Tulsa workshop at the time, I don't know, it's probably changed some since then. It's been a while since I've been there. Uh, they had a group called Free Indeed that would come and lead the singing for, uh, for the big crowd in the Coliseum. And the leader of that group was a guy named Jerome Williams. And, I, you know, I, I'd been there for several years, Jerome leading the singing, and Free Indeed was kind of the backup group and all that. And, leading uh, all this uh, singing going on in the Coliseum. Never had any idea of the struggle that was going on with that man. But one night uh, at the Tulsa workshop, one of the people in, in the group walks up to the microphone and says, hey, we just want you to know that we're celebrating, we're celebrating today uh, with Jerome. And, and Jerome was standing off to the side, yeah. He says, uh, Jerome wants you to know, he said that he's celebrating 156 days clean from alcohol addiction. And I almost fell out of my seat. What? This guy's been leading the scene. What? What? <laughs> he was struggling with addiction. And it was a great thing. It was worth celebrating that Jerome Williams had, had, could celebrate 156 days of being clean. I remember a, sunshine, a man here at Sunshine came years ago, asked to meet with the elders and the ministers. There were seven of us in the room, plus that man. And he confessed to an addiction 
that he had struggled with for years alone. And he finally realized after many years it was going to take more than him and his prayer to tackle this problem, to actually solve it. And you know what he did? He asked the elders to ask the elders and the ministers to hold him accountable. Accountable, And he said it like this. He says, you know, I, every time you see me, I want you to come up to me and say, how's it going? And he says, I know what you mean by that question. And he said, here's the deal. He said, I can lie to one or two of you. But man, he said, I can't lie to all seven of you. He said, I'll break down somewhere along the line, and I'll finally say if, if I made it through the week or not. And don't you love it when broken people receive their healing? And the Son of God on the cross means healing for us because the power of sin is broken. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, John says it like this. He says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so when you look at the cross, you can think about the healing which is there. But I want to point out to you the cross is not the whole story. And I want to tell you the rest of the story. If Jesus had simply died on the cross 2,000 years ago, and that was it, we wouldn't be here today. There would be no building on this site. This would probably be a McDonald's or a gas station or something, or it's going to be, would be very soon once they get that bypass in. But there wouldn't be Sunshine Church of Christ building sitting here. There would be no such thing as Christians or churches or church buildings anywhere on the planet if Jesus had died on the cross and that was it. If Jesus had died 2,000 years ago on the cross and that was it, the world would have forgotten him by now. Jesus' name would be known only to students of ancient history. He, he would have been dismissed as a fraud, a con man, or a lunatic because he falsely claimed to be divine. But here's the rest of the story. He was crucified on Friday, but three days later he walked out of his tomb alive. He came back from the dead to live forevermore. And there are some things that became very clear at that point. Number one, every word he had uttered, ever uttered was indeed the word of God. Every promise that he had made, he had the power to keep. And everything he said about himself and the meaning of his cross was completely and eternally true. So Jesus is alive. And he is issuing an invitation today. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus is alive, and he's knocking at the door of our hearts. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The most important decision of our lives is whether we will open the door and let him come in. The cross means nothing without the resurrection. And the cross and the resurrection mean nothing if we do not answer his plea to let him in. Maybe there is someone here this morning that's not a Christian. And this would be a great day. This is your day. This is an opportunity for you to confess your faith in Christ. To open the door, so to speak, and to let him come in. And make the cross and the resurrection mean something to you something positive we put our faith in Christ we repent of our sinful life we confess our faith and we are baptized into Christ and there we become
cleansed in the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And for someone here this morning who wants to become a Christian, we're inviting you to come. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation if you need response.